Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. Appreciate you guys checking us out. So we are, let me just get this. This is always an issue for me. Here we go. Uh, We are in part five, week five of this series that we are calling, Let's Try This Again. And if it is your first time here, let me briefly explain what we've been doing here. The the gist of this series, as the bumper sort of alluded to, is this idea that many of us, not all of us, but many of us were sort of given our our faith, primarily our Christian faith, when we were kids. And maybe it was your parents or grandparents, neighbors. Maybe it's a different religion for you. Maybe it was a, a rabbi or an imam. But so many of us are sort of given our faith as children. And and what ends up happening sometimes is that when we get into adulthood, high school, college, the working world, the pressures that sort of surround us, the trials, the tribulations, all that kind of stuff, begin to chip away at our faith and chip away and chip away. And sometimes to such a degree that it leaves us with almost no faith at all. And it's not that we walk away from Christianity or God, but it's it's just sort of like, hmm, it's not what it used to be. It's not that important. You wish it were better, but it just, it's just not. And so we've been asking the question all series long, what would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? If we were to hit the reset button and say, all right, let's try this again. Christianity thing didn't work out as well as I had hoped, but now that I'm an adult, I want to get an adult-sized faith for my adult-sized life. And so every single week we have been reinstalling, if you will, the operating system of Christianity piece by piece, part by part, with the ultimate goal of giving you a firm foundation that will thrive in your adult life, that no matter what you throw at it, it's going to be okay, and it's going to support you rather than you feeling like you're trying to support that childhood faith. So kind of talking about our childhood for a second, one of the things that I've seen is that as children, we were taught to ask God to forgive us of our sins. Now, I don't know if it was necessarily this formal, but this is sort of the foundation of what so many of us learned as children. And I was speaking with Christina, who heads up our family ministry, and I said, can you, like, what do we say at DHC? Like, right now, downstairs with the kids, how do we explain this to them? And she says, well, first off, we don't say it like this, because this is way too complicated for a kid. She goes, what we normally tell them based on their age is something along the lines of, hey, when you make a mistake in life, you can ask Jesus to help you to do better the next time, which I think we can learn from that ourselves. But maybe when you were a kid, your parents taught you the Lord's Prayer. You know that one section where it says, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we didn't say that prayer in my house. I actually thought that was only a Christmas song for most of my life, that Barbara Streisand. Beauty Christmas song, by one of my favorites. By the way, Christmas is coming right around the corner. We start those songs November 1st in my house. It's like a department store all day long. Anyway, so hopefully you do too because, you know, you're good people and that's what we do. Um, some of you were uh, raised Catholic. In fact, I know we have a lot of Catholics in the room. And I was talking to my buddy. Um, I said, well, how was it for you? How were you sort of taught about this sort of, you know, concept when you were young? And he said, well, you know, for Catholics, when we sin, we're supposed to go to confession and we, con- we confess our sins to the priest. So when we were children and we were doing CCD and, and all that kind of a stuff, they would literally bring us to the confession booth and, and they would show us what it looks like to confess your sins. But he says, you know, when you're six, the only sin you've got in your life is like pulling your sister's, you know, ponytail or whatever. He said, so most of the time, I just make stuff up. When I, was in, I just make things up. I said, that's great, actively sinning while trying to atone. It's perfect. That's what we like. We like to see that in life. But the reality is that when we're children, there's just not a lot of sin going on in our life. I'm not saying there isn't sin. It's just not what we experience when we're older. 
Because when you get older, then you got real sin and you got real mistakes. And, and unfortunately, what we all experience when we've got that going on in our life is the, the tag team that I know as uh, guilt and shame. And when we sin and we're adults, this, this duo, guilt and shame, just shows up. It doesn't seem to go away. And we all know this because every single one of us has that time in our life or that season in our life that, that we could just f- want to forget about or we wish we could have a do-over. And, and, you know, for some of you, it might have been college. College, you were just crazy. Maybe you didn't even graduate because you just got so wild your first semester that that was, that was it for you. But college for you is that time in your life that you wish you go, oh, my God, if I could do that, if I could, if I could redo that. Maybe it was when you first got to South Florida. And you got sucked in to the club scene. Uh, last, in the last service, people were raising their hands for the things that they did. You don't need to be doing that because I know what you've done. That's why I've got this list for you, okay? You got sucked in, and it was just one thing led to another, and you were doing things, and you were in places that you were, this is not Kansas anymore, and all of a sudden, you're like a different kind of a person. Maybe for you, it was your first marriage, Right? And it just, it didn't go well. And then, and then it was the second marriage, and now you're on your third. And it's just, this is, this, is, this is a mess. Spring break, 94, maybe for some of you, right? You went to Panama City. Now you got that lower back tattoo, and you were doing things that, like, you know, you just did not want mom to see those, you know, printed out pictures that you had. This is, or for you, maybe it was last night. Right? And you are just here today, because I've talked to you on the top of the escalator. You are here today. You didn't even go home. You came straight to church because you're like, I got to get in there. We got to, we got to, we got to, last night was bad. This is all of us. You know this. And so we try to fix this. We try to try to get rid and mitigate the guilt and shame. And so we pick up a couple of, you know, self-help books. We start listening to podcasts because we say, you know what? These are just mistakes. I can, I can fix these mistakes. So we, we get a couple of books. Maybe for you, it's travel. And you said, you know what, if I can just stay on the move, if I can just, you know, get that bucket list done and go to this city and that city and this country and that country, if I can just keep looking forward, I don't have to think about, about all that stuff that's behind me. If that's not your thing, maybe for you it's working harder. If I can just, just bury myself in work, if I can build an empire, if I, if I can become super successful, I can distract myself and I can keep my mind off of the things that I've done that I don't want to think about. Or alcohol. The thing with alcohol is that alcohol works until it doesn't. And then you got a whole other host of issues on your hands. And you do the juice cleanse, you do the yoga. And the reality is that all of these things work to some degree, but they never seem to kind of wash away, if you will, the guilt and the shame that we're dealing with. And so because we've only been able to temporarily remove these feelings we try to rationalize them. We try to come up with excuses for these things. And we'll say like, well, you know what? I'm only, I'm only human. Everybody's got their thing. Everybody's done something. This is my thing. Nobody's perfect, nor am I, right? I, I was drunk. That night when that happened, I, I, was, I was drunk. And I was young. And I didn't know any better. And it was during that time in my life when I was just really lonely. And all of these things are true. But none of these things really wash away those feelings that we're all dealing with. And we've all just got the guilt and the, sh- and the shame and the, and, and the past that we're just trying to make our way through. See, what I actually think what we're searching for in all this is forgiveness. Now, you might not use this word. This is, this is my word. But I think every single one of us at some level is doing whatever we can to try to find that magic formula, that magic pill that will help us 
wipe our hands of everything that we've done that will kind of clear the slate and will give us a fresh start in life. Now, the other sort of aspect to this conundrum, if you will, that we're facing is that while we're looking for forgiveness, there's this sense that we owe ourselves something, that there's this debt. And when you kind of look at your life in the here and the now, and you look at the things that you've done, you begin to say things like, you know, uh, I owe it to myself to be a better person. I owe it to my kids to have been a better dad. I owe it to my ex to have been a better husband. I owe it to my old boss to have been a more responsible em- employee. And we sort of say, well, if I can forgive myself, and if I can somehow pay myself back or pay my kids back or my ex back or, 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 or just pay others back, if I can do these two things, then I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to work out all right for me. and I'll, I'll feel cleansed and I'm going to be all right. This is all of us at some level. We've all been here. And because this is something that every human at some level and at some point struggles with, this is why every religion offers a solution to this dilemma. As far as I can tell with the research that I've done, every single religion offers a solution or to the dilemma of the past and the guilt and the shame. But what's interesting is that only one person offers himself as a solution. Throughout history, only one person stepped up and said, not only do I have the solution for you, I am the solution. And it's that solution that I want to talk to you about today as we're sort of rebuilding our faith and trying to restart from the ground up. To to begin this conversation, I want to introduce you to a guy named John the Baptist. Very famous name. If you don't know him directly, you've probably heard the name or seen a church named after that. Let me tell you a couple things about John the Baptist. Number one, he was a contemporary of Jesus, lived at the same time. Number two, very eccentric individual, wore unusual clothing, and he ate like bugs, okay? So his, his, his diet was unusual, but he was extremely famous. You might not know this, but I mean, he is wildly, wildly famous. He would have been the rock star of that time. Every single person knew his name. They knew Jesus, in fact, talked about John the Baptist. Look at how Jesus describes John. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. John the Baptist is greater than any person ever born. That's good praise. Right? I mean, if that were a Yelp review, you'd go to that restaurant. I mean, if Jesus himself is like, you know what, this guy's about as good as it gets, done. All right, let's go listen to him. So John sort of enters the scene, makes his debut in the Bible, if you will, in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. It says this. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me talk to you about this baptism of forgiveness. Because in the Christian setting, when we talk about baptism, we think about like beach baptisms. We do those here. We, go, we do a beach baptism. It's beautiful. It's nice. But a Christian baptism is different than what's going on here. A Christian baptism is an outward expression of inward change. It is an outward expression of already completed forgiveness. That some individual has given their heart to the Lord. They have been completely forgiven of their sin. This is now just an exercise to let the world know as to what has gone on in their life. This is not what John the Baptist is doing. The the, the quickest way that I can describe what he is doing is a, a purification ritual. Okay? He is cleansing them of their sins in this river, but he is getting them ready for the coming Messiah and the coming Savior. He is preparing them for who's to come. Scripture continues. It says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem 
went out to him. This is one of those sort of sentences we kind of breeze right past. We don't think about it a lot, but this is very important. I mean, it literally says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. That means this could be potentially tens of thousands of people have made their way out to the wilderness to see John. Even if this is hyperbole, even if he's like, oh, there's a million people there. There's a lot of people. It's not just like five or six people. It is a lot, a lot of people. Tens of thousands potentially of people. Here's the other thing. This is out in the wilderness. Where John is doing this is about 20 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem. This is not an easy journey. This is, could be days of walking that these thousands and thousands and thousands of people are walking out into the wilderness to see John speak. And because his crowds were huge, because his messages were just compelling, and he didn't have fancy slides like this. He just said, you're a sinner, repent. People couldn't wait to hear that. I'm going to start doing that here. Okay, they would just show up and the crowds were huge and this landed him firmly on the radar of the Jewish religious leaders. And they started talking amongst themselves and they're kind of like, have you heard about this guy out in the wilderness? Do you think he might be the Messiah? Because like it sounds like he's saying things that the Messiah might say. He's got crowds like we think the Messiah might have. Do you think it's him? And so the religious leaders make their journey out. They're sitting in the crowds. They're, they're watching this, you know, these baptisms. They're watching these messages. It's phenomenal. It's all over. And they slowly make their way up. They're kind of in the line to, to greet John. And they go to him and they more or less say to him, hey, are you the Messiah? Is that you? And John looks at them and, and says something interesting. He says, I baptize with water. First he says no. He says, but I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He goes, if you think I'm something, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think these crowds, and these are big crowds, if you think these are big, you haven't seen a big crowd yet because there is someone coming who's going to be so popular and so big and his message is going to be so powerful and the crowd... I can't even untie the guy's sandals, right? Can't even shine his shoes. So the story kind of continues, and it's sort of the next day. It's the same scene, same crowd, same message, same baptism. I picture John bringing someone up out of the water, and all of a sudden, he stops, and he goes, look, look, over there. Here, gives him like a towel because the water's in his eyes. Look, 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 shh, shh, shh. Over there, look. And I just picture all the people, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people stopping what they're doing to look where John is pointing. He goes, look, the Lamb of God. Now, we hear Lamb of God and we just go, eh, you know, just some Bible phrase all of a sudden. It's sort of almost lost on us. But every single Jewish person in that room or in that crowd that day would know exactly what he means because he says Lamb of God, that's how we read it. But in the original translation, it's more like the, the Lamb that God has sent. The Lamb that God has sent. And they knew the importance of this because for 1,500 years, last week we talked about the Ten Commandments, but there was other law that was given outside the Ten Commandments. And for 1,500 years, the Jewish people would have to sacrifice a lamb in order to find forgiveness of sins. If they wanted to atone for their sins, they would have to spill the, uh, the blood from a lamb. Now, this is unusual for us, but this is what God asked of them. God says this in Leviticus. He's talking about animal sacrifice. He says, 
I have given you rules for, the pouring, uh, for pouring that blood on the altar to remove your sins. So you will belong to the Lord. It is the blood that removes the sins because it is life. See, prior to this, he was saying that the actual life force of a being is inside their blood. And when you sin, life needs to be given. Now, he cut the Jewish people a break. He goes, you can use an animal. You don't need to die yourself. But this is not a perfect sacrifice. This is not perfect forgiveness. The Jewish people knew this. This is why they had to continually sacrifice lambs over and over and over, year after year, because they could not find perfect forgiveness in this lamb. But John this day, out of the blue, goes, look, the Lamb of God that takes away. And this word takes away literally means lifted up and carried off, which I think is beautiful. Lifted up and carried off. And he goes, do you want to know what that Lamb of God lifts up and carries off? The sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the entire world. That salvation of God that was promised to go out to the ends of the world, that was promised to Abraham, that is this. Now, in my opinion, I don't think that John or the crowd understood the magnitude of what's just said here. Because if they had, I believe that every single person in the crowd would have dropped to their knees at that moment and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But that didn't happen. In fact, life as usual just went on from John himself. I mean, sorry, yeah, John the Baptist himself would continue to struggle with doubt whether what he said was actually the truth. And Jesus, for the next three years, his entire earthly ministry was spent teaching and preaching and doing miracles, leading people back to what John just said here, that he is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Fast forward three years in Jesus' ministry. The last night of his life, he gets the disciples together in the upper room and they celebrate Passover, or as we kind of know that evening as, as the Last Supper. And this is where it gets interesting. And this is where it connects in to last week. So if you remember, last week, we talked about the fact that the Jewish people had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. That was predicted by God. That came true. At one point, God tapped a man named Moses, and he said, I'm going to use you to free my people. And so Moses went into Egypt. He went to the Pharaoh. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And God, from that point forward, began to send plague after plague after plague, trying to force the hand of Pharaoh, trying to release the Jews from captivity. But he was having a problem. The Pharaoh wasn't budging. He was a tough guy, and this wasn't working. And so God brings Moses, and he says, all right, here's the deal. I'm paraphrasing now. He says, this doesn't seem to be working. So I've got one more trick up my sleeve. One more plague that I've been withholding. I don't want to use it, okay? I've been trying not to use this one, but I promised I'd get you out, and he's not letting you out, and I, just, I, just, I really don't want to have to use this one, but I made the promise, and so I'm going to have to use this one, and it's the nuclear option, but I, he's left me no choice. Moses, here's what you need to do. Tell your Jewish people to come together tonight, and I need them to sacrifice a lamb. I need them to take the blood from that lamb and paint it over the door in their house. And Moses goes, wait, why, why? Will you do it, Moses? Yeah, all right, we'll do it. He goes, because tonight, 
and I don't want to do this, but I'm going to have to. Tonight, I'm going to send my death angel into the streets of Egypt, and he is going to kill the firstborn in every family. But when he gets to a home that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will know you're one of mine, and he will pass over your home, sparing you from death. And so they did it, and it worked, and Egypt released them. And for the next 1,500 years, they celebrated Passover, remembering when God spared them from death. And in that upper room, in that time that we call the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples came together to remember what God had done 1,500 years earlier through Moses and through the promise of God. But during this dinner that these guys have celebrated every single year of their life, Jesus said something that no one had ever heard before. And it was wild, and it came out of left field. And Jesus said, look, I understand that every year you've done this, when you've celebrated Passover, you've celebrated what God did so many years ago. But from this point forward, from tonight moving on, you're going to do it in remembrance of me. And the disciples heard this, and they go, wait, what? Huh? And he goes, no, no. Moving forward, when, when you eat this bread, you are going to eat this in remembrance of my body, which is broken for you. When you drink this cup of wine, you're going to drink this wine in remembrance of my blood spilled out for your forgiveness. This is very confusing for the disciples for a number of reasons. Number one, Jesus is changing the meaning of one of the most important Jewish holidays ever. It'd be like me coming in and saying, hey, you know what? This Christmas, we're going to celebrate my birthday instead. Okay? Now, I'm not Jesus, but that's what he's doing. They're hearing this, and they're going, can he do this? Is this something that we're allowed? He says, we can do it. All right, fine. But he's talking about his body being broken. He's talking about his blood poured out for sins. He is completely healthy. He is right there in the flesh, live, looking great. They did not understand this. Because what they didn't realize is that in just a few short hours, just a few short hours, Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried. He'd be convicted. He'd be tortured and whipped, scourged. His back would be flayed open to the bone. A crown of thorns would be pressed into his skull, spikes driven through his hands, through his feet, and he'd be nailed to a cross. But they had no idea that this would happen. Let me talk to you briefly about crucifixion. Crucifixion is one of the worst ways a human could die. It was designed specifically so that the offender, the criminal, would suffocate to death. As they hung there under their own weight, they would slowly suffocate. And there are reports that criminals would hang on that cross for upwards of a week. Just slowly trying to hold on to whatever breath they could have. Now, sometimes the Roman soldiers couldn't wait around for them to die. And so what they would do is they would break the legs of the criminal, dropping them, forcing them to almost lose their breath immediately and to die right there on the spot. If you remember, maybe you don't know, when Jesus was crucified, he was beside two other criminals. Take a look at how John describes the scene. So the soldiers came and 
broke the legs of the first man on the cross beside Jesus. Then they broke the legs of the man on the other cross beside Jesus. And then John inserts a detail that we might ordinarily miss. But for the fact that just a few short hours earlier, during that Passover, Jesus said that this cup of wine will now represent my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. John writes, but when the soldiers came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus did not suffocate to death on that cross. He bled to death because of the hours of torture and the whipping and the scourging. His back opened up, the blood pouring from his forehead and the spikes in his hands and his feet. The Lamb of God had poured out his blood. Scripture says that before Jesus gave up his spirit, because don't for a minute think that Jesus wasn't entirely in control of this whole situation. But before he gave up his spirit, he cried out one last word. With his dying breath, Jesus cried out the word to telestai. And it's an unusual word, and it's actually an accounting term. And it's a word that would have been stamped on the invoice that you would receive in the marketplace. It's a word that everybody in that crowd would know, would hear it quite frequently. When Jesus, just before he died, with his final breath, he yelled out, the debt has been paid to Telestai. 20 years later, Paul is writing a letter to a church, to a, gr a group of new Christians, and he's expounding on the predictions that John the Baptist made about the Lamb of God. He, he's expanding upon the, the teachings of Jesus, and, he, and he's talking about the, the, what the eyewitnesses witnessed this day when Jesus said to Telestai. He says this, He, Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's that debt that we were talking about earlier, which stood against us and condemned us. Paul is saying that your sin really has created a, de a debt. That thing that you feel, that's real. And you really did owe it to yourself to not make those bad decisions. You really did owe it to your kids to have not. You really did owe it to your ex to not. You really did owe it to God to not make those bad decisions. But there's good news. Through Christ, he says, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Your sin has been lifted up and carried away. The debt has been paid. You see, when we think about our past and we think about our shame and our guilt, I think the question that we're all trying to answer, whether we realize it or not, is what can wash away my sins? And you might not call it a sin. You might call it a mistake. You might call it a bad decision. You might call it an, un an unwise choice. I call it a sin. Alcohol doesn't work for a time, but not forever. Trying to be a better person does put you on a better path, but it's not fixing what was on the path behind you. See, I think if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what can wash away our sins? I think he would say clearly and directly and unequivocally, 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I understand that's an off-putting term, the blood of Jesus. I understand that's a phrase that sort of sounds like a, a line out of an old Southern Baptist hymn, but that's what the Scripture says. And that's the truth. And Jesus died for this truth. This right here from day one was the solution to your sin problem. This was the solution to your guilt and your shame. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? As we're trying to rebuild our faith, as we're trying to start from scratch, maybe some of you for the very first time, the thing that you have to do, the most important thing, is to say yes to Jesus. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you've done in the past, and quite frankly, I don't care. We've all done things. Sin is sin. There's no hierarchy of sin. But I need you to know that through Jesus, your past, your present, and your future can be forgiven. And it's, it's not a raising of a hand. It's not a walking forward and making some prayer. It's just a time between you and the Lord in your own heart. And you don't even have to understand it all. You could just say, Lord, I, I, I don't get it all, but what that guy on the stage is saying makes sense. I, I, I believe that your blood was spilled in some way for the things that I've done, and I want that in my life. And in a moment, you can be made right with the creator of this world. But even though we are forgiven of our sins, we are set free from our sins, we have a, a clean um, slate, it raises an interesting question that I think a lot of us still struggle with. And it's this, what do we do with the memories? And for some of you, this word memories might not be strong enough. For you, maybe it's, what do we do with the scars? Because you live your life and, and you go to those places and you go to that bar, you go to that city and you see that person, it just all floods back. And, it's, and, and, and the guilt and the shame and, and a sense of being a failure and the condemnation just seems to flood all the way back. John, what do we do with that? When you say yes to Jesus, God invites you to reimagine your past. That whenever you find yourself in this situation, God would say, let your past be a reminder of God's forgiveness and his grace and his love. And anytime you see that person, anytime you end up in that place or drive by that building, you could say to yourself, you know what? I've been forgiven of that. And the scar tissue that was there can be replaced by a memorial of God's love for you. Now, this will take time. It will take time. And for some of you, you're going to have to keep reminding yourselves, perhaps even on a daily basis. But if you are ever tempted to get dragged back into the guilt and the shame in your past, remember that through Jesus, your sin is lifted up and carried away. Behold, the Lamb of God that was sent to take away the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. Lord, one of the most painful things that we have to deal with is our past. Things that we wish we had never done. Things that perhaps still haunt us to this day, God. 
but you sent your son Jesus specifically, specifically to set us free from our past, to forgive us of our past, to empower us to live a new life as a child of God. I ask, Lord, if there's someone in this room right now that previously has not known you as their Lord and Savior, I ask that today would be the day that you would embolden them to make the decision to say, yes, Jesus, I, I don't understand it all, but I want a relationship with you. I can't handle the burdens of my past, I, and I've tried everything to get rid of it, Lord, and I need you in my life. Lord, for those of us who have known you perhaps for quite some time, I, I pray that today we will see you with fresh eyes. Lord, if we have allowed ourselves to get dragged back into the past, Lord, to realize that you have set us free from that, to live a life of victory. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've bestowed upon every single person in this world. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.